This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, there's the abortion laws and medical malpractice lawsuits and maternal mortality and infant mortality, all of that together. And I guess anything else that we can think of for this last episode of our third season of this podcast. That's a lot. It's a lot. But first, what is a thing that we do for no reason? Well, how about overusing internal monitors, you know, like intrauterine pressure catheters and fetal spiral electrodes? Okay. Why don't you tell me more? Well, I'm not saying that these internals are never necessary. I placed one today, but I do think that both of these are way overutilized. There are some docs who will put in internal monitors almost routinely with every labor, but we have to remember they do carry some risks with them. The fetal spiral electrode often leaves a small little permanent mark or a sort of a scar on the baby's head when it's even when it's placed correctly. And when you place it incorrectly, you could be putting it in places you don't want to, like a soft spot that gets in a vein or even an eyeball happens. The pressure catheters, you know, there's a reasonable thought that they increase the risk of infection and probably increase the risk of abruption, particularly if it's sort of slid in between the membrane and the placenta. And then you add to that maybe saline infusion. Maybe you put it in to do a, a saline infusion because of variable decelerations, but your retroplacental, things like that. So these are known to cause, in some cases, some significant harm and injuries and maybe not add a lot to the treatment of the patient. Yeah, I thought that the infection thing had been studied and not really that well established. Well, I knew you were going to call me on that one. So so in the Gray Journal last year, there was a poster published. This was a poster that was published by agreement, but it's not a peer-reviewed you know, prospective study. And it disagreed with previous literature on the topic, but they did do a retrospective sort of computer data mining study of a lot of ladies who had IEPCs and who had chorioamnionitis. And they concluded in theirs that IEPCs didn't cause any harm. But I will say, again, that disagrees with the previous literature on the topic and literature that has better controls, like why they were used and matching patient populations and things like this. So there's a reason why this was a poster presentation and not a published paper. So I would be leery of like changing my opinion about this in a world where we don't have prospective, well-controlled data and it disagrees with previous studies. But I'll grant you that the infection thing is not a huge risk. A lot of times we're using these for two or three hours and patients, it's not a huge risk. That's not the primary reason not to use them. Okay, fair enough. Maybe they don't, or maybe it's depends. But regardless, hopefully most of the listeners could at least agree that these internal monitors shouldn't just be used upfront routinely when the external monitoring is working just fine. Because if nothing else, it is still an extra cost. So there's there still needs to be a corresponding benefit. So when would you say is an appropriate time to use them? You, c- you can just start with the FSE, the fetal scalp electrode. Or spiral electrode. I go back and forth on that. But essentially, the spiral electrode, I think, is appropriate to use whenever the information that you need, you can't get it with the external Doppler. And that's assuming that we've actually given that a good effort. In other words, it's not something to use just because the nurse has to frequently go into the room and readjust the belt. The baby keeps 
song off the monitor. It's not a crutch to make their job a little bit easier, but you've really tried and you just can't get the data you need to know if the baby's doing well. Okay. So other than convenience for the nurse, when, when else are people like inappropriately using these electrodes? You know, we used to believe in the eighties that the fetal spiral electrode gave different and better information than the Doppler did, and that it was better at detecting variability, for example, particularly subtle variability than the external Doppler could. But honestly, that hasn't really been true in a little bit over 20 years, at least. The technology has improved to the point, and the electronics that interpret the signals have improved to the point where there really is no meaningful difference between the information you get between the two devices. But because of this old truth, I think, there's been a teaching around that if you were worried about the tracing, that you should put a fetal spiral electrode on to make sure you're seeing the best and accurate information about the baby. And that's simply not true. So the fact that someone's having a tracing that you maybe don't like a little bit, you know, decreased variability or D cells or whatever, that's not in and of itself a reason to put one of these electrodes on. But I do think that happens quite a bit, almost as if it's part of the workup and evaluation of abnormal fetal heart tones. And I do think the device is overutilized even in patients like obese patients who you might have trouble tracing. Now that certainly is going to be, you know, the sort of situation where you just can't get a good continuous tracing with the Doppler, but it's not usually impossible. And think about it. Let's say that you're inducing a morbidly obese patient. Her cervix is a centimeter. Her water's intact. Are you going to break her water hours before, maybe 24 hours before delivery, just so you can put a scalp electrode on the baby and then really increase the risk of infection and things like that? No, you shouldn't. You're going to try to figure out how to trace this baby externally with the Doppler. And that may mean getting the ultrasound and helping the nurse find the ideal location to do that. But that initial investment of time usually will help continuously trace the baby and pay off for many hours. And, you know, it's a little bit more work, but you can trace these babies externally. Yeah, just using some extra kind of basic skills to optimize the external monitoring. And you've talked before with other examples about how having the higher tech tools doesn't help if the person doesn't know how to use them. And I've also heard the cautionary tales of the electrode being placed on the wrong thing, like the baby's eye or maybe the mother's cervix. And so what a shame if those cases happened in situations where they never needed to use the electrode in the first place for the reasons you're saying. So, okay. So what about the IUPC, the intrauterine pressure catheter? Well, well, first of all, I think one thing people do with this is that there's a tendency if you put in one, you put in both. So, but that's really not true. You, there's no reason to think that way. So someone, if you had a reason to put a scalp electrode on, don't automatically place the IEPC as well. There's no reason for that. But I think there are a couple of, you know, really legitimate reasons to use an IEPC. One is if you've fallen off the labor curve and you need to make sure that the contractions are adequate because you're considering doing a cesarean. Now, even then you may be able to determine that just by palpation, but inadequate contractions happen. They should be a rare occurrence in appropriately managed labors. But if they are there, then it may affect your decision about how long to give her before you proceed with a cesarean. Now, the danger of placing a catheter for that reason is that let's say the patient is at 205 monovideo units. Well, now your nursing staff may assume that she's adequate and they stop increasing the oxytocin as if the goal of getting past 200 was the only thing there and 
anything above 201 is too much. But, you know, 200 Montevideo units isn't a goal. It's a threshold. It's a minimum threshold. We know that 200 Montevideo units is actually inadequate for about 10% of laborers and that 40% of women who come in spontaneous labor have MVUs above 300. So if you stop at 200, you've automatically said that 10% of your women are going to get sectioned just because you weren't willing to give them adequate contractions. And I think the IEPC encourages that. The truth is you should just be increasing the oxytocin unless you've reached tachycystole or some other predefined safety limit for your Pitocin, which you know, as a whole other episode, but something like 36 million international units or something like that. And then I think the second reason that you might want an IEPC is that you need to do a saline infusion for recurrent deep variable decelerations. And of course, even the value of that is not in improving fetal or neonatal outcomes, but it does make people less anxious. And in some studies, it has decreased the risk of cesarean because it's made people less anxious about seeing deceleration. So here's another scenario. What about a woman who's had a prior cesarean and she's undergoing a trial of labor? A lot of people would think that that's a good reason to place a pressure catheter to make sure the uterine pressure doesn't get too high and potentially cause uterine rupture. Yeah, well, but it isn't. In fact, speaking of infection and all that, I put a link up from a study from 2020 that showed that one of the negatives of using IEPCs was an increased risk of infection in subsequent cesareans. So in other words, you put an IEPC in because you were worried about having to do a cesarean for inadequate contractions. And then the women who ended up getting cesareans, they had higher risk of infections. And then those higher risk of infections increase the risk of subsequent uterine rupture in women who undergo a trial of labor. So you could actually argue that IEPCs, if anything, make uterine rupture more likely to occur, at least from a global sort of multiple pregnancy systemic view. But in the early 90s, there had been some expert opinions, you know, these sort of, we're all interested in VBAC and let's make it as safe as possible. And so just off the cuff, people had advocated for pressure catheters in women with this concept that knowing some that 200 MVUs was better than 300 or, you know, somehow that would be a signal that a trial of labor was going wrong and would prevent ruptures. But we found out that it doesn't work. And certainly for the last decade or so, no one has seriously recommended in the literature that IEPCs improve the safety of VBAC. Okay, yeah. So there's no predictive or preventative value in an IEPC in a TOLAC, at least with regards to uterine rupture risk. So that's fair. That's pretty well established, at least in that that one study. But do you, so we were debating, do they or don't they cause infection? Do you think that in a current TOLAC that, that if it does increase infection, it could thereby increase the risk of rupture with that same labor? Well, there's just not evidence to that. So I don't know that there's a point of speculating about it. I will say that the audience hasn't figured out, we're having a little disagreement about whether or not IEPCs are associated with increased risk of infection. And that's okay. That's the point of talking about this stuff. So I will say to defend your view, the literature about the IEPCs increasing the infection rate in subsequent cesareans, it could be that in the women who eventually got cesareans for stalled labors, the IEPC was put in and their labors were prolonged by two or three more hours while the physician was getting the information they needed to decide to proceed with a cesarean. Whereas in the women who didn't get IEPCs placed, the information was already available and they proceeded to cesarean more quickly so that it could be a confounder that the use of an IEPC is associated with slightly longer labors and therefore increased risk of infection. And that very well might be true. I wouldn't dispute that. 
But that study simply said that it was more likely for women who got C-sections after an IEPC had been placed to have infection. And infection in an index pregnancy we know is associated with an increased risk of rupture due to poor wound healing in subsequent trials of labor. So, you know, connecting lots of dots there, but both of those things can be true. It can be true that IEPCs don't directly increase the risk of infection and also that use of IEPCs is associated with increased risk of infection, maybe due to prolonged labors. Okay. Well, let's table that then and move on because... Everyone knows now that the Supreme Court finally released its statement and ruling overturning Roe versus Wade. And I, I don't know that we have a whole lot new to say about this because we recently had an episode about abortion when that Supreme Court draft had leaked very recently. And that was before Roe was actually overturned. But I would still encourage anyone listening to this right now to also listen to that prior episode if they haven't. So right now, there there's still a lot of uncertainty for OBGYNs and more than half of the states in the U.S. at least, especially in the coming months, about what we are going to be allowed to do and what we are not going to be allowed to do. And in that prior episode, we spent a lot of time discussing some of those nuances. So we don't need to repeat that right now. Maybe I'll just do like a 30 second elevator talk about what life is going to be like, at least where you right now are practicing in Tennessee. So that trigger law in Tennessee bans abortion, except to prevent death or a serious injury only to the mother. And it doesn't go into any further details, doesn't give examples of what qualifies or what doesn't qualify as preventing death or serious injury. So optimistically, that could mean that at least the physicians in Tennessee are still trusted to make that determination. But to be pessimistic, it might mean that some prosecutors could interpret that very strictly, as in only if the mother is actively dying from a complication of pregnancy can you terminate it. So obviously, there's going to be a lot of gray in between those two extremes. Really, any case where the mother is currently stable, but would have some unacceptable risk of threat to her life if the pregnancy wasn't terminated. So just some examples, like a cancer patient that's pregnant and she needs to have some cancer therapy that would be fatal to the baby. Or a more common situation would be pre-viable rupture of membranes. So we have a lot of work to do in our profession in at least 26 states to help ensure that the mother's safety is still protected, especially in these kind of gray areas. Yeah, and we did talk a lot about that before, and we do have a lot of work to do. The These laws are going into effect in different waves. As of today in Tennessee, a law went into effect that outlaws all abortions once a heartbeat is detected. So yeah, there's some gray area. Like what if I see an ectopic pregnancy with a heartbeat? Am I allowed to remove that surgically, which would be the standard of care, even if the mother, even if it hasn't ruptured and the mother is hemodynamically stable? So as you said, we would hope there there's good faith and good scientific understanding among prosecutors and district attorneys and legislators, but we don't have any guarantee for that. So I, I think the one thing that we didn't talk about that I would add to that discussion is the cost of a criminal legal defense. So in states like mine, where we have these gray areas that does allow for such 
potential prosecutorial sort of interpretation of the statute, it's possible that a local district attorney who believes that ectopic pregnancies can be re-implanted into the uterus might arrest me for doing surgery on that non-ruptured ectopic pregnancy I just described. The one thing that I've not heard a lot of discussion about among the OBGYN community that I would encourage us to discuss are legal defense funds. Where do I get the half a million dollars or so that's necessary for a good criminal defense? You know, malpractice insurance will drop you over criminal conduct. They won't be involved in the case. They will not represent you in this matter. They won't pay for it. They certainly won't pay for a criminal defense attorney. And so when these cases happen without a lot of support from legal defense agencies or things like that, the life of an OBGYN could be ruined even if you're eventually found innocent by a a jury of your peers, which I think would happen in that case. And I will say, you know, if, if such a case happened that a woman came in with an ectopic, I'm going to do that surgery. And if I get arrested for it, that's fine. But I just want people to know that we're going to need legal defense funds in the event that that were to happen. I hope it never does. And I say that, too, because there's a meme going around in the OBGYN community of a text message where supposedly yesterday this happened and a woman didn't get her surgery while bleeding out for nine hours because the doctor was checking with an attorney. And I would just say shame on that doctor. I won't say more than that. I don't even know if it's a true story. But if it is, take the woman to the OR and worry about the other things later. But you see the pickle we're put in. I saw that same text message screenshot. I think it was posted on Reddit or something like that. And yeah, hopefully that's not true because then we're going to lose our profession. Like everyone will be in jail or just bankrupt from having to pay for their legal defense. So previously, I think we also talked about that catch 22 with these abortion bans where let's say you don't terminate a pregnancy that is dangerous to the mother's life and then she has a bad outcome. Well, then she or her family can sue you for medical malpractice, like if you don't treat the ectopic, for example. But then if you do treat the pregnancy that's endangering her life and then that aggressive district attorney prosecutes you for the murder of the fetus, then you're in that situation where you know, you, you can't practice anymore for that reason. So it's just this really extraordinary thing. It's hard to actually wrap my mind around right now. And just thinking about it, I can't come up with another profession that has that kind of legal catch 22. Yeah, it's almost dystopian in a way, but I've got a question for you then. So thinking about other professions that that have similar potential conflicts. Out of all the professions in the United States, think lawyers, accountants, engineers, teachers, physicians, politicians, financial consultants, TV news people, whatever. Which profession is the most likely to be sued? I always read about defamation lawsuits, but I guess really because of the conversation we're having, I'm going to guess doctors. Correct. Doctors. Okay. And out of all physician specialties, which specialty is most likely to suffer a lawsuit? Well, again, because of this conversation, I'm going to guess OBGYNs. That is correct. And to me, that's just such a profoundly bizarre statement. Let me ask you one more question and feel free to be cheesy if you want, but I really want you to just give your answer the truth here. Why did you become a physician? Why did you want to become an OBGYN? What's your goal here? Well, that's like the med school and residency interview question. And it's hard not to sound cheesy even now, but 
I think for me and probably for you and a lot of us, we really did go into this because we want to help people and for OBGYNs to help women in particular get through what could be both the happiest and scariest day of their lives and then continue to take care of their most sensitive issues for the rest of their lifespan. That's really special. And we go to work and we do our very best to help patients navigate sometimes very treacherous waters and all of the work, all of the breaking the 80 hour work week limitations, studying and bending over backwards and just everything we do because we want to help people and put in our best work. And sometimes we still have bad outcomes despite all of that. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about the second victim. I don't know if that was last episode, but recently, but it's a real thing. And yeah, that sounds right. I mean, your answer is hopefully fairly typical of people who are in OBGYN or, or medicine in general. And then, Bo, we, you have this bad outcome despite doing everything with all of your training and all of your knowledge and all of your experience and all of your best intentions and all of your best work. And you have a bad outcome and you get sued, even if you didn't do anything wrong or even if we did maybe made a mistake, but we're doing our very best with what we had in that situation. Now, the patients are never at the same time held accountable for things that they might have done to contribute to the bad outcome. We don't think about that societally. And I understand why that's, it's hard to even say. I mean, I'm not trying to fault anybody. But but for example, let's say an internal medicine doctor had held off on ordering a chest film or CT that might have diagnosed lung cancer in a patient and the diagnosis was delayed for maybe six months, then that would be a very common area for a lawsuit. Now, the doctor in most cases, they did what they thought was best in that moment with the information they had. And hindsight always does change our perspective of these cases. It truly is 2020. But they get sued and they settle for delayed diagnosis of cancer. But you know, the patient, they had a 40 year pack history of smoking and they were obese and they had generally been non-compliant with recommended medical therapies over many decades of their life, like don't smoke. But they're not held accountable or responsible at all. There's no fault for them. And again, I'm not saying they should be held accountable. I, it sounds jerky to say, but I am saying that the legal system in the United States holds doctors to a level of accountability and responsibility and culpability that's just not seen anywhere else in the world or in any other profession in the United States. And the legal system ultimately, through this perversion, is actually harming patients because we get this attitude of over utilization of defensive medicine and all the CYA stuff and all that things we've discussed recently that end up negatively harming our healthcare system and our patients. Yeah. And it's strange how different it is in Europe and in other places in the world. It, I think it's at least partially a cultural difference, maybe partially an econom economic difference. Physicians in the U.S. Are, are something like six times, seven times as likely to get sued as physicians in Europe are. But apparently the lawsuits in Europe are on the rise as well. But some countries have adopted things like no-fault compensation, like in New Zealand, for example, so that if a patient suffers a catastrophic outcome, they can be helped financially without it being this dark mark forever on the physician's record. But it does seem like medical malpractice is a major thriving industry in the U.S., especially compared with the rest of the world. Yeah. And my original point was just that even compared to other professions, does that make sense? I mean, we have more training than almost any other profession. We deal with more complexities than almost any other profession. And we're generally a rather altruistic group of people who are generally doing their best in a given situation. 
it, we get sued for it the most. I mean, think about a financial advisor. You have a financial advisor maybe at your local bank who helps you with your investments. This person has limited training, expertise. They give pretty shoddy investment advice a lot of times. Their advice might cause a client to lose millions of dollars. But where's the lawsuit? And I can assure you that he didn't go into the financial advice industry out of some altruistic intent. In fact, he might have even financially benefited from the bad advice he gave you. But where's the lawsuit there? It's a cultural gap where we are holding physicians to an impossible standard. Yeah, I guess it does seem to be a double standard. It's like the idea is like for the privilege of taking care of people's lives, it's like an occupational hazard that you also have to accept the lawsuits when things don't go according to plan. But I suppose some people out there in the world would try to argue that American physicians get sued more often because they're worse doctors than, say, in Europe, and they could point to our maternal and infant mortality rates as evidence of that. And in fact, there are lawyer websites that make that exact argument to try to I guess, stoke cl- more clients into suing their OBs or their pediatricians. So what would you say to that? Well, let's talk about infant and maternal mortality for a minute then. You're queen of the segues, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. All right. Well, you know that this subject drives me crazy when people make comparisons of the U.S. healthcare system to healthcare systems in other countries based upon metrics like neonatal infant maternal mortality and these sorts of things. In the last few weeks, as we've been discussing how changing the laws in the United States about abortion, how that's going to impact things, I have seen just innumerable stories, news stories and and whatnot that talk about how the changes in abortion law will change for the worse are already horrific horrendous infant and maternal mortality rates, and that it will negatively impact minority groups disproportionately, creating a further chasm between the disastrous disparity in healthcare between black and white birthing women that already exists. If you read these papers and these headlines and these news stories, you would think that the United States is just a horrible place to be a pregnant woman or have a child. They say things like the U.S. is the only first world country that has a rising maternal mortality rate. U.S. ranks last in the developed world and U.S. infant mortality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You would just think that we're the worst people ever. Okay, well, we can dig into that a little bit. Let's do a throwback because we did a prior episode on maternal mortality in a prior season. So the CDC reports that maternal mortality in the U.S. was 23.8 deaths per 100,000 births in the year 2020. And that was increased compared to 20.1 maternal deaths in one year earlier, and then 17.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 births one year before that in 2018. So if you take those three years and just trend them, that's a 36% increase over three years. And with the Delta spike in COVID last year, I can only imagine that number will increase again when the stats are all crunched for 2021. So on the surface, that looks very alarming. And especially when you think that in 1987, when I was one year old, the number was just 7.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. So the CDC defines maternal mortality as the death of a woman who is pregnant or is within 42 days of the end of a pregnancy, and the death is from any cause that is related to or aggravated by the pregnancy or by 
the management of the pregnancy and not from an incidental or accidental cause like like a car accident, for example. So by that metric, maternal mortality has increased more than 300% in my lifetime in this country. And meanwhile, in Finland, where I was just hanging out for a couple of weeks in 2017, their maternal mortality rate was only three maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. And that has been decreasing over my lifetime. So that's kind of what the big sensationalist articles are highlighting. So are we missing something or is it really as dire as they say? Well, you do paint a very dire picture. And I think what people miss is really very simple. And I also think it's very well known, which is I think what frustrates me with sort of the irresponsibility of media agencies and organizations, including ACOG and March of Dimes and a lot of folks that continue to spread the lie that maternal mortality is increasing in the United States in some dramatic way. That's the base myth. Okay, so you will give us citations for why this is a myth? (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you a citation. You demand these citations. Well, I'll give a citation to an article in the May 2020 Green Journal called Mortarnal Mortality United States. And I'll simply read to you the first sentence. Quote, rigorous studies carried out by the National Center for Health Statistics show that previously reported increases in maternal mortality rate in the United States were an artifact of changes in surveillance. So this is not some obscure issue. This is, I think, has come about since we did our other episode and in, in, in a way dr- drives home some of this point in a well-done analysis. This is a well-known issue and that the increases in maternal mortality that we've seen since basically 2003 in the United States appear to be largely artifactual. So maternal mortality in 2003 was around 14 per 100,000 live births, I believe. So you're seeing any increase above that level is just artifact. Can you explain that? Well, it's not just that the rate has not been increasing. It's that this artificial problem is actually maybe even masking a true decrease in maternal mortality in the last 20 years. So we've had perhaps fewer women dying in childbirth year over year since then. But in light of the artifact and the way we calculate the data, it looks like it's been rising. So here's what happened. In 2003, a pregnancy checkbox was introduced on death certificates, but this didn't happen all at once. It wasn't national. So various states added this to their data collection methods at different years and with slightly different methods of implementation. And every time a state would add a new checkbox, this led to discovery of more maternal deaths. More maternal deaths were being reported. In other words, the maternal mortality rate was always higher than we thought it was. And as various states started implementing a checkbox at different times and in different ways, that led to the appearance of a trend upwards slowly over the many several years in the maternal mortality rate. But really, it was the rate sort of regressing to the true, so far undiscovered maternal mortality rate that had always been there in the background but had been artificially suppressed by the data collection methods. In fact, the true rate, as I said, has very likely been declining, but the reported rate was increasing. Now, the second thing that happened is that states in the last several years, last decade or so, have started setting up at various times maternal mortality review committees. And this has accelerated to near completion in the last 10 years or so. And now all deaths of women who've been pregnant in the last year are being reviewed and a committee decides whether or not those deaths were pregnancy related or attributable to pregnancy in any way. And we're discovering lots of women who died six months or nine months postpartum or some you know different time 
times anytime in the first year do maybe later in pregnancies to things like cardiomyopathies or substance abuse or suicide or things like that, things that could have been exacerbated by pregnancy. But we're also discovering women who died in the first 42 days too. And we're attributing more of those deaths to maternal mortality than we used to in the past. The definition of maternal mortality that I just mentioned doesn't include accidents or incidental things, but there could be some room for interpretation there. So how do we decide that it's truly incidental and not in some way related to the pregnancy? It could be something obvious like a car accident, but it's hard to make a case to a maternal mortality review committee that a woman who died within 42 days of her pregnancy didn't die of the result of something that in some way was affected by her pregnancy. Because really, even the car accident could have been due to the pregnancy if, for example, if the mother was under the influence of pain medications after a C-section or maybe substances she was abusing or taking to deal with her peripartum depression. So you're saying that in 1987, for example, unless a woman died in the act of childbirth due to hemorrhage or eclamptic seizure or stroke or something, then those deaths probably were not being captured or attributed to the pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we think. We've had other tailwinds, if you will, since 1987, that if anything should be associated with an increase in maternal mortality, like the increasing risk of cesarean delivery. And I think that has definitely increased women's risk, but we've also gotten much better as a healthcare system at advanced life care support and other critical care issues that makes us really good at saving the lives of women who become critically ill. So we've probably kept our maternal mortality rate at about the same or maybe slightly lower, despite the fact that today, compared to 1987, we're dealing with a patient population that has more risk for death due to more cesareans, more obesity, higher age at first birth, more multiples, and other things that we know contribute to maternal mortality. Okay, so what about Finland? want to bring that up again. So let's say it's true about the U.S. that the maternal mortality rate was always higher than we thought in the last 40 or 50 years, and it's not really truly increasing even though the numbers look like they are. Scandinavian countries are famous for how well they track medical outcomes even at the population level. So how do we reconcile the differences between the U.S. and other developed countries like Finland. Yeah, I think there's multiple factors in play. And again, I think that's why these country to country comparisons are so tough. Now, I know you picked Finland because you just got back from there, but you also happened to pick the country with the lowest reported maternal mortality rate in the world, along with usually Sweden and Iceland. But let's think about some of the factors that make these comparisons problematic. Now, one is definitely underreporting in Finland and those other countries of maternal mortality. It is a true statement to say that the United States does today a better job of capturing all maternal deaths in the first year because it's become a point of emphasis for us. And we've decided, dedicated review committees, federal funding, et cetera, and now in nearly every state reviewing every death in detail. In Finland, they have an emphasis on direct maternal deaths from things like hemorrhage and thromboembolism, which in their data represent about half of all their maternal deaths. But in the United States, those two causes, hemorrhage and thromboembolism, only represent about 10% of the causes of maternal deaths 
as we record it. So that suggests, just back of the envelope, that in Finland, they may be ignoring other causes of maternal death by as much as a factor of five, which would make their maternal mortality rate closer to 15 or 20 per 100,000 if they use the same criteria and methodology as we use in the United States. In fact, I base that math on a year in which the maternal mortality rate in the U.S. was 17.4 per 100,000 in 2018 which suggests that the rates of maternal mortality in Finland and the United States might actually be very close to one another if they were calculated using the same methodologies. It does appear, if you look at their individual data, that they're underreporting deaths from eclampsia and preeclampsia, hypertension, liver disorders, ectopic pregnancies, and several other causes. In fact, in the United States, we report more deaths from liver disorders alone as maternal mortality than we do from postpartum hemorrhage or blood clots combined. So when you look at the individual rates of things like hemorrhage and thromboembolism reported in the literature of our two countries, the individual rates like death from hemorrhage or death from thromboembolism, death from amniotic fluid embolism, they're no different than they are in Finland. But we just appear to be reporting on deaths due to several other causes as well. Yeah. And you mentioned that checkbox thing. I guess they don't have a checkbox for pregnant or not pregnant on death certificates in Finland. But that whole checkbox thing is interesting because there was a study in 2019 that was looking at, are these boxes even being checked correctly or not? Because it's somebody checking it. And this study found that as much as 28% of these were being falsely or like a false positive rate, I guess you could say, meaning that somebody accidentally checked pregnant on a deceased person's death certificate, even when they weren't pregnant. And this was only focusing on reproductive age women that they weren't looking at, like were 92 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. And there were also some false negatives too. So that, and they concluded that they had no idea why these were being falsely checked or falsely not checked. And also the other thing they found was that these false positives of pregnancy on a death certificate were 50% more likely to occur among black women. And that would lead me to another segue to ask you about racial disparities. But before we get to that, is there any other differences you could say that would make it unfair to compare Finland against the U.S. for maternal mortality? Well, honestly, I'd be surprised if Finland didn't have a lower rate of maternal death. I mean, they should have a lower rate of maternal death. For starters, we talked about in another episode, they only have a 16% rate, 15 to 16% rate of cesarean. That's half of the rate in the United States. So that alone should cause them to have fewer maternal deaths. They also are starting, frankly, with a much healthier population of patients. About 25% of Finns are considered obese compared to 42% of women in the United States. And as you would expect, that means they have less diabetes, less pre-existing hypertension, less pre-existing heart disease, less substance abuse, and all the things that go along with having a less obese patient population. Only 9% of Finnish women smoke cigarettes, which is about 50% less than women in the United States. So I would be shocked if just with healthier patient population and lower C-section rate, I would be shocked if they 
didn't have a lower maternal mortality rate, whatever that real number is, than we do in the United States. But again, to do such a comparison, you'd have to compare apples to apples. The data is that sort of data is harder to come by. Almost all birthing women in Finland are Caucasian. And as you already alluded to, our maternal mortality rate among Caucasian women in the United States is significantly lower than that among Black women. So you you have to try to do a fair comparison between populations that look matched. You would never publish a study that had unmatched data in almost every categorical comparator and then make conclusions from that. But newspapers do it all the time when they just take the top of the line number and compare it to the other top of the line number. Now, let's try to do that. Finland, by the way, has only about 50,000 births per year in the entire nation. There are cities in the United States that have more births than that each year. That does happen, though, to be about the same number per year as the state of Utah in the United States. So I will say that small data samples like these, are they often hide something and they're generally not really reliable for comparisons, but we can do this. So in 2018, Utah's Perinatal Mortality Review Committee determined that that there were 11 pregnancy-related deaths out of 47,000 live births. That number included women up to one year after birth, since they're reporting the pregnancy-related mortality ratio. About half were due to suicides or substance abuse overdoses. In fact, they say that 75% of their deaths were due to a prior or current mental health condition. They count all of those as preventable, by the way, which I'm not sure that's necessarily a science-based opinion, but it's their opinion. Only 17.5% of the 40 deaths they saw in a two-year period between 2015 and 16 that they looked at only 17.5% of those occurred in the first 42 days, which is what Finland's counting. They're not counting the whole year. Most occurred after that time period, between day 43 and 365. In 2016, they reported that their pregnancy-related mortality ratio, which again is not the same as the maternal mortality rate, but they reported that as 25.7. So this distinction between the first 42 days and the first year is often missed by people. Now, the CDC reports the first 42-day data. And if you go look at their website, they actually suppress the data from Utah and most of the other states in the United States due to, quote, confidentiality and reliability concerns. So I think they're having trouble, as I did, in converting from the ratio, the first 42 the first year to the rate, the first 42 days, since more and more of the states are only reporting their one-year data instead of their 42-day data. But those numbers that rate and ratio numbers are confused and they're usually close enough numerically that you see them conflated in media reports. And so that becomes a real problem when we try to compare what the rate is in the United States to what they are in other World Health Organization nations when even the CDC doesn't know how many women died in the first 42 days. Now, the total maternal deaths in 2013, stick with me, in Utah, the total number of deaths were 19, and they determined in 2013 that six of those 19 were pregnancy-related. But in 2016, the total number was 17 women died, but they determined that 13 of those were pregnancy-related. Again, that's within the first year, not the first 42 days. But when you look at a small data set like this from one small committee, it's easy to see how decisions about what you're going to count as pregnancy-related can have a huge impact. So, so. So think about what I just said. The actual rate of maternal mortality, the actual number of women who died, declined from 19 to 17 over a four-year time period. But the pregnancy-related deaths, the metric that we count and report to the CDC, 
went more than doubled. It went from six to 13. So if you're just looking at the top of the envelope numbers, this was like crazy. And the media reported it. Maternal mortality has doubled in Utah in four years, etc. But why did that happen when the actual number of women who died went down? Well, they actually tell us why. And that's why I picked Utah, really, was because they explain it. They say that starting in 2015, quote, the Perinatal Mortality Review Committee made a decision to count accidental drug-related and suicide deaths as pregnancy-related because mental health conditions may be aggravated during pregnancy in the first year, and this has led to an increase in the number of pregnancy-related deaths and subsequently the pregnancy-related mortality ratio from 2015 onward. So in other words, Utah decided that given the composition of its board that year, they got together, they talked for an hour over coffee and bagels, that that they would just change what they were going to count as maternal mortality. And while other states and other countries may not have made the same decision or made the decision at different times. Now you can see why the CDC isn't even reporting the data from so many states because it's so non-comparable. So we continue to have a lack of uniformity, even in the United States, let alone the rest of Europe, about how these decisions are made. And the conversation at some one-hour meeting in Salt Lake City can just profoundly change how this data is reported. And none of that's really reported out by the news media that talks about this horrible crisis. Now, a point of all that is not to confuse you, (laughs) but that it is confusing and it's complex, even for people who do this for a living, like the CDC, who doesn't know how to report these numbers. So a good question might be, what was the true 42-day maternal mortality death rate in Utah in 2016, since then we can make this comparison to Finland since they're ethnically and population matched? And the answer is, I can't tell you. I've reviewed their MMR data from all those years, everything they put on the website and the CDC. And I think the answer is probably around seven or eight per 100,000. But I can't be sure of the timing of when all those women died. And that compares really very favorably to the data that you see in Finland and Sweden, particularly when you realize that we're talking about real numbers. We're talking about two or three women in Finland each year and three or four women in Utah each year. So an apples to apples comparison is important and it's very favorable for the United States. But if you just Google the maternal mortality rate in Utah, you'd see this epidemic of skyrocketing and exploding maternal death, all due to the fact that their committee just changed their definitions a little bit and decided to report one year and not 42-day data that's not immediately available. So all of that I just said is an example of what we are calling artifact. And this paper that I started with goes through the data that would help us understand that and why these parent rising maternal mortality rates are not really rising and might even be declining. Well, I agree that I I see why Utah would want to expand their definition. I think a lot of people and hopefully lawmakers would want to know what's the rate of women with newborns and infants that are dying from supposedly preventable causes. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, I think we should include those. But when other countries and states don't, you can't make comparisons. Yeah, yeah. So we still need to be able to make the comparisons too, even if we do expand the definition. So it gets frustrating, though, when the media reports about the maternal mortality rates, and they seem to imply that it's the doctors or it's the broken system in the U.S. that's the problem. And they usually follow with some kind of commentary about how other countries are doing it so much better, and that's why their rates are lower. So again, Finland, bringing this one up again, a lot is written about this baby box that the government will send to all new mothers, and they've been doing this since 
the 1930s and it has this little kit of diapers and baby clothes and it has a mat in the box that can make the box into a safe little crib and it's got some toys and some things that promote breastfeeding. It's hard to imagine that a box like this would reduce the rate of maternal mortality. It might have an impact on infant mortality, maybe by reducing the crib death or SIDS. But a lot of popular media articles will cite this baby box from Finland as something that we should do in the U.S. to reduce maternal mortality. I'd have to guess that maybe their narrative is that this baby box is emblematic of how the Finnish government cares so much more about moms than the U.S. government does. And that's just going hand in hand with things like guaranteed paid maternity leave in Finland and now legalized abortion. And of course, there are very well-written articles also in the popular media that maybe focus more on those types of issues that more directly help mothers. But at the same time, it's so easy for some journalists on, I won't mention any any specific websites, but they're not really from any medical background, but they write these articles that focus on any random detail about a country like Finland and claim that that detail is another reason for the lower maternal mortality rate. So, so an example of this would be centering or group prenatal visits, which those are also more common in Finland than the U.S. And so an author might suggest that group prenatal visits result in less maternal mortality. That's an association and that they just imply causation too. And Finland gets the reputation as a very safe place to give birth. And why not? Correctly so. They, it is a very safe place to give birth. But the media can sometimes make it sound like just move there and then reduce your risk of death during pregnancy. But I think that's not what you're saying. No, I don't think that moving to Finland, I don't think if you take U.S. patient X with all of her problems, that moving to Finland will automatically make her thinner, less likely to smoke, make her diabetes and blood pressure problems magically go away, make you younger when you give birth or any of these sorts of things that are real contributors to maternal death. Although the saunas, I don't know, maybe that's it. But I will grant you that you'll have a lower risk of cesarean, and that can be very important. Ironically, in the United States, I find that conversations about maternal mortality almost never discuss the risk of cesarean delivery, and I find that abhorrent. But I don't doubt that Finland actually probably has the lowest rate of maternal mortality in the world, but not for the reasons that people think and not as dramatically as they claim. Yeah, I unfortunately did not get any younger while I was there, (laughs) but I did eat a lot of cheese. It was delicious. But anyway, what about infant mortality, though? Well, it's the same story in many ways, and we're over time already, so I won't bore you with it. But, you know, in the United States, we count any baby born at any gestational age that has a mere cord pulsation. We count those as a live birth. And then, of course, if it dies in the first year of life or the first minute in that case, it counts against our infant mortality rate, which is the number of babies that die in the first year. Other countries do not do this. So how we collect the data makes, again, these intra-country comparisons inappropriate. I'll put a link to something I've already written about this that goes in some more detail about it. But if you're comparing apples to apples, the United States does not have a high infant mortality rate. Now, we got on this sort of infant and maternal mortality issue because of the discussion about abortion. So I would like to spend a minute talking about how restrictions on abortion will cause our infant mortality rate to increase and potentially cause our maternal mortality rate to increase because you see that in this conversation all the time. 
So one thing you need to know is that as much as half of infant mortality in the United States occurs among infants who are born with congenital birth defects or anomalies. In many countries like Japan, terminations for fetal anomalies are very high and very commonplace. So when a termination for a fetal anomaly occurs, that very often will prevent a death that would have occurred in the first year of life or even first minutes of birth that would have counted then against our neonatal or infant mortality rates. If you terminate a fetus with, say, a severe brain or heart defect in utero, then it will not be born alive to die in the first few weeks or months of life, and therefore you'll have a lower maternal mortality rate. So countries with higher rates of abortion necessarily have lower rates of infant mortality. And I'll also say that prior to this last week's decision, despite the fact that abortion for fetal anomalies was available in all 50 states, People did not utilize it at the same rates that it's used in many European countries and in many Asian countries. And therefore, we still have this remarkable figure that almost half of our neonatal or infant deaths are due to babies with anomalies. And I say that only because it's unclear how much abortion restrictions will actually have any impact in states where women weren't choosing to terminate anomalous babies anyway. But for an individual woman, it may have, for her who was going to choose to do that, it may have obviously a dramatic and profound impact. But when the media talks about our excessive infant mortality rate in the United States, worst in the developed world, horrible, horrible, it again, like it seems to be a commentary about the quality of our pediatricians or neonatologists. But the truth is, our pediatricians and neonatologists are among the best in the world when you do apples to apple comparisons. In many of the European and Asian countries where abortion rates are much higher, those doctors aren't getting the tiniest and little babies to take care of and babies born with multiple and complex anomalies, nowhere near the rate that neonatologists in the United States do. In fact, the leading cause, as I said, of infant mortality in the United States is congenital malformations and chromosomal abnormalities, many of which are terminated at dramatically higher rates in other countries. And I'll put a link to something I've already written about that, like I said, but I will just say this. If you look at that article and you look at, there's a graph in there, if you exclude micropremies and anomalous infants and look instead just at babies born in the late neonatal and post-term period time for infants. Our infant mortality and total child mortality rates, so all the children under five, all the children under one, and all the children born between 28 days and 365. So babies born between 28 days and five years, basically, we have the lowest rates of mortality in the world. No country has lower infant or child mortality after day 28 up to age five. No country in the world. All of the increase in infant mortality that we're burdened by is in the first 28 days, and its burden comes from anomalous infants that weren't aborted. So that's my real point is that, in fact, we have the best neonatologists and pediatricians in the world and the best neonatal and pediatric system in the world. And I believe in the same way we have the best obstetricians and the best system of obstetrics in the world when you control and do kind-to-kind comparisons, despite the flaws, which you know I'm more than happy to talk about, we can do much better. Let's get our section right down to 16%. We've got a lot of room to grow, but to denigrate us continuously gives people the wrong impression about the quality of our healthcare system and our physicians in the United States. But we still get sued more than any other doctors in the world. Yeah, there you go. There's the full circle point of the episode, isn't it? Well, in the time we have left, which isn't that much, do you have any similar commentary about racial disparities, particularly with maternal mortality, which we hear a lot about in the U.S.? Because in that 2020 data set, Black women were almost three times as likely to die as 
white women in childbirth. Yeah, there, it was 2.9, the ratio for black women compared to non-Hispanic white women. And I don't have any reason to disagree with that number per se. I mean, it could be a little off one way or the other from all the reasons we discussed, but at least we're counting these deaths in the United States in the same way for the most part. So I'm sure the ratio is approximately that. You did talk about there being higher rates of false positives on the pregnancy checkbox among black women than among white women. But then remember now, at least the maternal mortality review committees are getting these and processing them. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen the ratio improve. It was reported closer to four a few years ago, and now it's 2.9. That's probably because we're cleaning some of that up and we're finding that some of the attributed deaths among African-American women were not actually, they weren't pregnant. So, but let's put the real numbers here. Let's put numbers to these women. In 2020, the last year we have data for, there were 861 maternal deaths in the United States. 352 of those were non-Hispanic white women, but the lowest rate actually occurred among Hispanic women where they had 158 days, but but an overall lower rate at 18.2 per 400,000. But that compared to 293 black women who died and their rate was 55.3 per 100,000 compared to 18.2 for Hispanic women and 19.1 for non-Hispanic white women. So so over three times higher compared to Hispanic women. Actually, Hispanic women had the lowest rate of maternal mortality. Yeah, that's a good point, because sometimes people's solution is, you know, that we just need to improve access to care or that there's somehow some fundamental problem there that is a difference in the inequities of maternal mortality. And that there's not a good, strong reason to believe that. But I was just going to say that many of my patients, unfortunately, have the impression that a lot more than 293 black women died in childbirth in 2020 because the media talks about it so much. And so I think I would just point out a couple of things. First, cesareans are much more likely to happen among black women as compared to Hispanic or white women. Women who are delivered by cesarean have four to seven fold the risk of death compared to women who have vaginal deliveries. Go Finland. But black women in the United States are 22 to 64 percent more likely to undergo a cesarean compared to a non-black woman. And then black women who undergo cesarean are 5.5 times as likely to develop a thromboembolism, for example, as black women who have a vaginal delivery. So I don't hear this discussed very often when we talk about disparities in maternal mortality, just as I don't hear cesarean section at all discussed that often when we talk about maternal mortality. And I think it's very important. I think that we need to answer the question of why black women are getting sections at such a higher rate, whether that's implicit bias or some other cause, we need to focus on that. The other thing I'd like to point out in this regard is that black women in the United States have less of a racial disparity compared to white women than they do in other multiracial countries like the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, black women are four times as likely to die compared to white women versus 2.9 here. And that's, in a, by the way, in a country with a universal healthcare system where many of the economic disparities and sort of the social things that we talk about all the time in the U.S., you know, people in the United States would love to have the U.K. system and often it cited that that would be an end to the racial inequalities and in these healthcare outcomes. And in fact, the United Kingdom has worse racial inequalities in healthcare outcomes, and specifically in maternal mortality than we do here. So I point that out because people are usually shocked by that. I've pointed that out to officers in ACOG and folks, and they're like dumbfounded that's a true thing. 
I'll put a link to a source, obviously. So I think a lot of the current conversation about disparities in health outcomes and maternal mortality in particular that we're having in the United States, I think that we're not, they're not being very productive and we're not really focusing and thinking about real root causes, which we don't have time to do today. But I think the trend for all these topics is that the issues of maternal infant mortality are way too politicized and the politicization of these issues becomes a barrier to real conversation and real progress in improving the care we deliver to mothers and children. All right. How about we make that a wrap on season three of this podcast? Well, if you can say that in Finnish, then we'll do it. Hmm. How about, okay. Not a perfect translation, but I'd say, Wait, isn't that an onion? Well, yeah, it's a phrase. Just like, yeah, that's a wrap. You're talking about wraps and... Like a wrap around an onion? Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's an idiom. It means the same thing. Hmm. So... You still have a lot of finish. My finish is weak. My finish is weak. (laughs) But so that's a wrap or that's an onion for season three. But we are coming back for season four and we're going to do a deep dive into infertility for sure in that one and going to talk about other things like, well, we'll keep talking about mortality, maternal and infant mortality and how we can lower that and a lot of more things we do for no reason and a few more surprises. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.